0: For the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. Andre Ossiman is the author of five novels and 12 total as an author or editor. His most recent work is titled Find Me. He is a distinguished professor in comparative literature at CUNY Graduate Center and a fellow of the New York Institute for the Humanities, and I'm glad to welcome him today. So, Andre, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you about the process of writing a sequel to begin with, but I'll just start by asking you how long you had been thinking about picking up the lives once again of the characters in Call Me By Your Name.
1: Actually, I started thinking about them from the very beginning when I finished Call Me By Your Name. I had written that book in such great haste that I always felt that I had sort of cheated time because the novel goes over 20 years in the space of about 20 pages. And I always felt that this was kind of an injustice to the characters, there was stuff missing that I should have done. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone to start writing something between those years. And then I let go of it, I did another book, and then I did a collection of essays, and then I decided to go back to it. But I didn't know how, where do I start? Hmm. And it all came to me First of all, there was a lot of attention. There's so much attention. And people constantly tell me, what happened to Oliver? What happened to this? What happened to this? And I didn't know the answer. And who am I to say? But one day I was in a train coming back from a city in Italy that I happened to like. And uh, I was sitting next to this beautiful, beautiful woman. And we started talking. And I said, "This is this is the beginning of a story. And this is how I'm going to begin it. And I did. That's incredible. Yeah. So there was a moment in real life that, of course, then you take it to other places. And I said, this is the father. This is the life of the father after the book. So it really started in a certain way with the life of the father? Yes. As much as anything? Always, always. with the life. Sometimes I, end this, I begin a novel, like Enigma Variations. I started it at the very end mm-hmm. and worked my way backward. But here it started with the father, was no question. And the second story came to me when I was thinking about cadenzas. I'm just thinking about cadenza. So what a beautiful idea, someone writing a cadenza to the G minor, the D minor concerto by Mozart. That was the impetus. Then you just have this, everything sort of flourishes from a small, sometimes insignificant detail. I'm going to talk to you in a little, just a bit more about the role of music in your work. But
0: I do love that as well. I mean, the idea of the, the cadenza, and it plays such a central role in
1: that particular story. It does because the Cadenza is not just something that has a history of its own, but the looking for the Cadenza, the sort of the archaeological extrapolation of what a Cadenza was is also the story about the two men who are there and the third man who is not there. And it's also a story about what is happening to Elio and how shall we dig and sort of find out what is really going on in his heart. And it's very much the same thing as what is going on in the Cadenza. You say that you
0: wrote Call Me By Your Name in Great Haste. Was there a reason that it was written so quickly? Was that just the natural gestation of the
1: novel from your No, I wanted to get done with it (laughs) because I was writing another novel, which had given me some difficulty. And so I put it aside. And one morning I woke up and then just decided to write this new thing about a house in the north of Italy. And that was the beginning. And I wasn't going to take it to the next step. And yet I wrote three pages, then five, then 30. And the next thing I knew, I I really was writing a different story. And I was letting go of the older one, which I went back to eventually and published. But I needed to end Call Me By Your Name right away. I couldn't just keep going with it. It felt as if it was an intrusion on the other book that I was writing. And then I realized, of course, years later, that actually that was not an intrusion. That was just a different story that needed to get written and was very easy to write. So obviously I was sort of, there was a lot of steam coming out of me. Do you live with a lot of your novels in the same way? Yes, as you probably know, I think actors have the same thing. Whatever part you're acting just doesn't stop when you go home to your baby and you sort of feed them and then you have your wife and you have your dog and whatever. You carry over the novel and the characters in the novel and the spirit of the novel stays with you all the time. You go to bed thinking of it and you wake up saying, God, why didn't I jot this thing down? Now I forgot it, you know, and so you you live with it. Every novel has a particular personality, and it infuses everything else. Do your memoirs go through a similar process? Oh, yeah, because any memoir is really a collection of moments in your life. But how are you going to connect those moments? You have to create a narrative and some kind of chronicle to justify why this this particular episode follows this particular other one. And if you cannot connect them, then you have something that's jolting all the time, and it's a terrible book. So you have to connect them. And in order to connect them, you have to create a logic. And it's coming with the logic that's really hard for a person like me. Virginia Woolf used to say the same thing. I'm terrible with plot. I'm very good with people sitting at a table discussing something. But when it comes to plots, I'm horrible. I have no imagination for it. So how do we move from A to B to C? You need some plot. That, for me, is torture. For others, it's the easiest thing in the world.
0: Yeah. One of the things I really love about your writing is just the way that dialogue fills the pages.
1: I find that as I grow older, I used to write long passages of prose. And now I find that I really enjoy dialogue because people reveal themselves and basically inquire into the lives of others through dialogue. And for me, it's very important to calibrate just the right accent on the words so that the emphasis falls in the right place. Otherwise, you just have chit-chat, which I hate. But somebody told me, this reads like a screenplay. Were you thinking of a movie? I said, not at all. It just its how they speak in the train. But I think there's such a strong cinematic quality to your work, even in the spirit. I
0: mean, Eric Romer is always someone I think about when I read your,
1: you know, whenever I read a novel by you. I think Eric Rumer has definitely had a place in my life, an in, in enigma variation. And nobody realizes this. The woman is called Maud. There's another one called yes. Claire. Uh-huh. There's one called <laughs> Chloe and Heidi. And uh-huh. nobody realized what I was doing. And you I'm, just
0: need Pauline and you'll be all set. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: Pauline would have been a dead given. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Call Me By Your Name was made into a celebrated film two years ago. And I assume that that must have had some weight on
1: the way that the book was written. Not really. Because And that's my biggest fear is I'm always afraid that people will expect something and then they won't find it and find me because Uh it's, it's not written as a direct sequel. People want to know, are they together? Will they get together? Will they not get together? What's going to happen? That's not my forte. That's not how I work. I was interested in each person's life alone without the other. And how sometimes they feel sort of a filigree of memories sort of working its way into their lives. Mm-hmm. And then they banish it or they don't want to think about it and so on. Were you surprised when this first came up that this was going to be the kind of film that it became? That okay, it was you kidding? I, it was showing at Sundance and they said, why don't you go to Sundance? I said, what for? You know, I figured this was going to happen and then it was going to disappear. And yeah. I had no idea that this was going to become like... A dominant sort of topos in love stories of today. I, have no, I, I didn't know that. It really and, touched so
0: many people. I mean, you talked about how many people have written you. Yeah. With real interest in the
1: lives of the characters. They're fascinated by and And everybody says that the book has changed who they are and that it made them very sad. And yet it was not a bad sadness, as it were. And I always said, and I've regretted saying it because people have taken offense. I said, why did you cry in this book? It was not a book that one cries at. And people said, what do you mean? I cried for days afterwards. I said, I don't understand why. And I still don't understand. I mean, when you're the author, you have no idea that this is the effect that it's going to have. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly people feel that you're, you're basically an insensitive person.
0: Because you don't have the, same, <laughs> the exact same reaction they do. Right.
1: Do you have emotional reactions to books in that way? I mean, I can't, I honestly can't think of There are that I've two books cried over, that, but... that I did cry at. One, I mean, these are ridiculous things, but you'll appreciate one of them. One is Oblomov. It yeah. was such a sad, sad story, and it goes worse and worse yeah. and worse. And, um, and I cried at that. And uh-huh. then the other book I cried at, and this is what you'll appreciate, was The Biography of John Keats by Eileen Ward. And I met Eileen Ward and I told her, You know, I cried at the end of your book. And these are the only two books that I remember sort of basically weeping over. Did you meet Eileen through the and Institute? Through the she was Institute, one of the Institute's yeah. founding yes, she figures. she was a wonderful, wonderful person. And that's what I loved about her was her humility. You mm-hmm. had no idea that this woman had written one of the most definitive biographies of Keats. Yeah, she was
0: a really interesting interesting person. Yeah. She used to carpool with Nabokov she to, really? to Cornell Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> in the summer. And she also she started the biography discussion group that's now migrated to CUNY. It's, CUNY, yeah. it's fused, I think, with part of the the. Levy Center. But Eileen Moore was a fantastic she biographer. Was, was. And you spend time still in Rome and New York quite a bit and in yeah. Paris as well. Do you write as much in each city or do you pretty much do your writing when you're in New York? Or do you find any of those places particularly
1: conducive to writing? No, because usually when I'm traveling, I'm staying in a hotel. I'm seeing people. I'm being interviewed. You know, You're working. You're just working. So you really don't own yourself. Plus, when you're away from your base, as it were, you're not exactly totally focused. So I need to be in New York in my little study with the air conditioner, and I'm very happy. And that's where I write. As time goes on and you've revisited the way that nostalgia works with memory
0: and, and the way that those two experiences and types of knowledge are connected, has your sense of what they are changed considerably over time as you've written, you
1: know, so many novels that engage with those things? Yeah. My friend and old colleague, James Chase, used to tell me, don't ever go to nostalgia again. And he told me that 25 years ago. And of course, I didn't heed his advice, but right now I just try to distance myself as much as I can. But I find that once I went back to Egypt in 95, which is now almost 25 years ago, I felt that what I had captured in my book, Out of Egypt, written in 94, was good enough that going back to the city to check and to revisit and to relive was a waste of time. I just couldn't wait to get out of Alexandria after having written the book. So nostalgia is something that it's something that is about yourself and who you were and the childhood that you're trying to reconnect with. But there is no reality to it. And that much I've learned. There are two things that I always mention to people is this difference between regret and remorse. Remorse is when you are sorry for the things you've done, and regret are sorry for the things you never got to do. Mm. And I think that those are, for me, very comfortable poles because they both have something to deal with. The aftermath of things that basically have changed color and therefore, you are dealing with what I call subjunctive, conditional, you know, different moods of verbs that are not necessarily in the here and now. And so, I'm more comfortable in the might have been than I am in the what was. was. And that's so
0: interesting, I think, for someone who starts as—whose first books are works of memoir and yeah. before you make the transition into writing novels. Did you
1: always want to be a novelist? Was that yes. something that was— that was always my dream. And I wrote out of Egypt, not really as a memoir. I wrote it as a memoir that was also going to be read as a novel because I wanted to basically novelize my life. But I had facts that I thought were important to me. And so I needed to work with those facts. But again, how you connect all those facts is really the task of a novelist. There are fantastic memoirists who write about facts that we are dying to find out, but they're terrible books because they're not put together well, and they could never have been put together well, because you need to seek out the fictive voice in even facts that have occurred. How you connect them needs to be done with some degree of voice, attitude, irony, humor, sorrow, whatever. The mixture of all these things is what makes for a successful book or a good book, let's say. You did
0: Start out more or less as an
1: academic, I think. I mean, you know, I, you
0: did get a Ph.D., right. you continue to teach, you wrote a dissertation, et cetera. Did you draw a strict distinction between sort of your ambitions of for an academic career and
1: your interest in doing something different? Or did the two just coexist? Or Well, you have to make them coexist. I went into comparative literature. I was always a comparatist, even in high school. What happened is that I wanted to write, but I also knew that I wasn't going to be able to live off my writing. So I I had to do something. So I explored business. I went into advertising. I was a broker for a while. And I did all those things, but I I would always sort of fall back on being the academic. And eventually, I got my PhD. I wrote my dissertation on La Princesse de Clèves, which is a book that nobody reads anymore, but it's sort of the first French novel, and it's an amazing book. But it stood me in good stead because when I decided to write Call Me By Your Name, I was using La Princesse de Clèves as sort of the skeleton of the book, and nobody understood this, and nobody wants to know that, but that's fine. But I always taught literature, and I think I'm a very good teacher. I taught literature not only from the point of view of themes and character and how this is written and style and so on, but I'm also interested in what an author sounds like. How do you read an author? And I teach literature by looking essentially at sentences. And, and it, it throws people off because people want to do all kind of identity politics, all the isms, they want to bring those in. And I never do. I just want to look at just the style. And you study the book from the point of view of style and how an author is actually developing that novel. So it's really, it's more like a literature course taught as a craft course. And I think it makes for a very rewarding experience for the students. I think it does. And I, I wouldn't be able to teach any other way because they're getting things that most academics don't really want to connect with. So I do that. And I love teaching and I love the academy. But at the same time, I also like being a writer. And one basically allows me to do the other. Some institutions refuse to tolerate the fact that you could be a writer and an academic, and I will not name them, but some institutions actually encourage that sort of thing, and they've been wonderful to me. You've always seemed to me to be such a figure apart
0: as a writer, certainly from trends in literature, Certainly you never, I don't think you ever had anything to do with a postmodern novel the or with minimalism novel. or the experimental novel. Yeah. Do you ever feel that you're in a somewhat isolated position yes. when it comes to in, yes. in that regard? Yeah. But you, Which has its benefits. I'm, I'm not...
1: I mean, a lot of people ask me, what advice do you have to give young writers? And I give them two advice. I say, one is don't read any of the contemporaries or at least no, nobody who's written anything for the past 50 years. Don't do it. And I mean, there are some exceptions, of course, but because these were people who read people who had written before they were writing 50 years. You have to transcend the contemporary scene. Otherwise, you're going to be sounding like everybody else, which for me is a disaster. But you also feel that you're very isolated. But that's not a bad thing because I wouldn't want to have conversations with many of the contemporary writers. I would have nothing to say to them, and God knows they have nothing to say to me. So I'm very happy... Do you go back and reread many of the same books? Yes, again yes, and again? I do. I do because I, I teach them, and I always say, "My God, still brilliant." Uh, from one of my favorite authors, whom I discovered late in life, was Edith Wharton, and I'm always amazed at how beautiful Ethan Frome is.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of Ethan. There's an Ethan Frome reference I know in the book, and it's yes about yes. the pickle jar. The, yeah. Yes,
1: <laughs> <laughs> she started it in French. You know, and so it is courtly, even though it takes place in the sticks, it's a courtly book. And uh, of course, it has all the inhibitions of a courtly novel, which is what I love about it. But then I love her other novels as well. Very smart and very sort of scrupulous and judicious in the way she narrates things and sees into people. I'm a brilliant writer, so mm-hmm. I, I admire her
0: we were talking about this just a little bit earlier i think there's a way that returning to something returning to these kinds of books for example and these titles and these particular things that you might come back to again and again really think about long and hard i mean i think music obviously plays that same kind of place in your in your life as a as a writer
1: i have no explanation for why it's there i don't understand why do i always bring in classical music Part of me says it's because it's very important to me. It basically tells you about the sensibilities of the people involved who basically love this kind of music. There's a moment in one of my novels where the characters, this particular quartet is me. And so he gives the woman a CD of this particular quartet and he says, because it's me, I want you to have it. That's a bit too emphatic a kind of statement. But at the same time, there's so much in... I mean, what classical music means to me in a work of fiction is that it tells you, okay, you've got the plot, you've got the characters, you've got maybe the ideas or the themes or whatever it is, and then you have this other layer, which is the classical music, which is the most transcendent, the most permanent thing that the human condition has ever been able to create. And geniuses are the ones that I deal with. I don't deal with sort of secondary composers, but There is a sense that when you're dealing with the Diabelli variations, for example, you're dealing with a work of genius. And when you mention it, you're already saying to people, we're dealing here with very important things. Whether you know it or not doesn't matter. It Mm -hmm. won't change your reading of it. But it means that we're stepping up. And it's this idea of stepping up to something that's a bit more serious, more maybe that transcends the here and now. That is what I'm trying to accomplish when I mention, just mention, a piece of classical music. Did you ever write music or study no, music? no, or? no, no, never did. Yeah. I listen. I'm totally, totally passive when it comes to music, but I know it. I have judgments. I mean, there are certain performers that I like and certain that I hate, but then I change my mind constantly. And you learn that classical music is essentially, it's timeless, it's, it's, it's not time-bound. It's about that which will always exist long after we're gone. Our books may not, but the classical music will.
0: Well, I really appreciate your coming down and speaking no, like to us I
1: was, I was. Thank you for having me, Eric, really.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at www.nyihumanities.org.